I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Welcome back to For Your Ears Only. This is the spin-off James Bond podcast on the Optimism Vaccine Network. As always, I'm your host, Jake Tropila, and I'm joined with me by Jack Eason. Jack, how hey. are you doing this evening? I'm doing pretty well, Jake. I jumped the gun there. It was a terrible, terrible misstep by me as co-host. It's all Shame. right. Well, Shame on me. Well, uh, not to bury the lead, but we're going to talk about a film that has uh, many terrible missteps. So, uh... <laughs> Without further ado, let's get into it. This is episode 0010, uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. The year is uh, 1974. This is Roger Moore's second outing as James Bond, uh, directed by Guy Hamilton in his fourth and final film. If you've been keeping up at home, he also directed Goldfinger, uh, Diamonds Are Forever, Living Let Die, and now The Man with the Golden Gun. So, uh, Jack, let's, uh, let's get into it. What is your history with this movie, okay, if you have so- one? I, I do have, I kind of, I have a, a shadowy history with this one to some degree, which is, um, I started watching James Bond movies when I was pretty young, you know, okay. I, I guess I first saw this one probably when I was nine or ten, I'm guessing, maybe even younger actually, maybe even seven or eight, honestly, um, and I remember this, I loved this movie, I remember this being one of my favorite, if not my favorite James Bond movie from that era. Wow. But I've not, yeah, but I've not seen it since I was pretty much that age. Like, it was my favorite movie, but it was never on TV, so I never saw it more than once. Interesting. Um, and I don't really remember much else from it, other than, like, some of the, the I remember Scaramanga's Beach a mm-hmm. little bit and a few and the third nipple stuck with me because that's just a weird plot thing but we'll, we'll deal with that later um right so yeah i i remember this being i had very fond recollections of this just that that obviously something must have caught me but watching it now many years later uh folks apparently your opinions can change your priorities can change over the years and uh, watching this now i do not know what exactly drew me into this i'm drawing a complete blank um because yeah this is not this is not premier james bond it has to be said no yeah this one's always odd um it has always been odd to me uh i was never a fan of it growing up probably because it was on heavy rotation with uh moonraker on spike tv i always felt like these two were always on and I feel like I must have seen like the middle section of this film, which features the car chase about a dozen times, just from uh, casual channel surfing. But when I got to watching the films in their entirety a few years back, um, this one really stuck out as uh, offensive, problematic, shitty, all <laughs> all kinds of all. It is just all kinds of wrong for a Bond film, and it's like I'm. I really. I always feel like Roger Moore, I want to like him. He's a very fun Bond, but I feel like he gets off on the wrong foot with his first two films. And this film especially um, is uh, very, very disastrous, for lack of a better for, word. For sure, yeah. There, there's, um, yeah, this one has, uh, it feels like they almost tried to rope him back into Connery mode. And he, yes. He doesn't, he doesn't, yeah, it's not a mode that Roger Moore's 
comfortable in. It doesn't work. Yeah, and he's he's even gone on the record and said he's not he's not comfortable with some of the things he does. Like he just skip ahead. He he interrogates a woman brutally by slapping her and twisting her arm. And um, and this is yeah, this is not the Roger Moore I want to hang out with. I I would actually be much more at home watching a Moonraker Roger Moore where he's where he's you know he's like a jolly old uncle having fun on a space mission and not a cold-hearted prick who's globe-trotting yeah. to kill a guy. And it's got that, and then it has, I don't know, like, there's just an imbalance here because it has that, and then it does have some broad comedy elsewhere, and yeah. it's, just, it's a very, it's it, this film feels very much, weirdly, this film feels more transitional than Live and Let Die, which came before it, which yeah. I, don't, I don't understand how they managed to get things more collected with Live and Let Die then with the net, you would think that was <laughs> this one should go at least as well, or at least they'd understand what happened. But uh, apparently not. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll we will discuss these things. We'll get get into this as we yeah. get through. Let's get into it. So we start off on an island, uh, which is an island in Thailand, which is now it was a deserted island before the shooting of this movie, and now it's known as James Bond Island. It's a famous tourist attraction. Uh, we're introduced to our villain, Francisco Scaramanga, played by the great Christopher Lee. And, uh, Jack, you had mentioned uh, way back, probably in the first episode, that uh, you feel like Scaramanga would be a good Bond. Um, yeah. I think if there's any saving grace to this film, it's Christopher Lee as the Bond villain. It is, absolutely. Lee is... Um Lee is a class act. I mean, just generally, he just works, and I think he was fond of this role too. Um, well, you, like not to get too far ahead, but I feel Scaramanga is still unfortunately underused. But Lee, yeah, like, Lee does everything right. I think Lee has a, char- a charisma and a presence, and a kind of a slow kind of it, his politeness. He meets James Bond exactly where James Bond would is supposed to be met. He's, I mean, the whole point is he's a flip side, I guess, of James Bond. He's the the brutish killer James Bond as opposed to the brutish killer James Bond that works for the government. <laughs> um, yeah. So we, we draw our distinctions as they come. But yeah, I, I definitely Christopher Lee is, I think, is the... He's the main draw here. Um, there's, Absolutely. There's d- definitely. And, and kind of set up immediately with... And we also get Knickknack introduced That's early right. on. And the he's late. certainly memorable as a character. I mean, it's, it's got memorable stuff to it. Um, Nick Knack, of course, is uh, Hervé Villechez, who is a... Uh, I, I couldn't track down... I don't... Like, I'm not sure what her, his his health conditions were, but he's 3 foot 11 inches tall, obviously very short. Yeah, uh, Apparently a lot, of, a lot of health issues and so on, but he... he Became famous, I mean, for this and Fantasy Island is probably the TV show he's best known for. Yeah, and he's he's definitely interesting as as Knickknack, of course, which is a odd name, like odd job and Knickknack. You know why not? But yeah. he's sort of Scaramanga's, I guess, overarching butler, cook, hitman, backup guy, <laughs> everything. Yeah. yeah, is the name Hit uh, Knickknack? Is that a is that a demeaning name for a diminutive henchman? Like he's he's a little little guy you would just put in your pocket and carry around with you like a knickknack. It, it is, yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, there's a few of them in here. Um, I'm still not even sure, honestly. Uh, there's a character in this film called High Fat, and I don't know if that's a pun or not. I don't know if they even intended it that were like because it could be a pun, but he's not a fat person. So I feel Definitely. like it's just it just feels like a Chinese name they made up. That yeah. could also be, but I don't know. Um, we get a lot of puns, uh, not to skip too far ahead, but I mean, the, the theme tune, which is 
its own thing. Oh, we'll, of, we'll get into that. Yeah. So, yeah, but, but Nicknack and, and Scaramanga are introduced here as our, our main villains. Interestingly enough, there is no... James Bond does not appear in here, which I think is the first since... Is it from Russia with Love? I think might be the first pre-credit well, sequence that didn't have him at all in there. But that a is correct, of him. yeah. It had a... Well, it had a, a body double playing... Or Connery sure. appears briefly, but um, it turns out, of course, it's not actually Bond, and if you recall in Live and Let Die, Bond also does not appear in that uh, in the trio of political assassinations. Oh, that's right, yes. So yeah, this is the third and, uh, spoiler alert, final pre-title sequence that does not feature Bond uh, himself. I believe that is actually Roger Moore playing the mannequin of Bond. Yes, um, yeah, but, I think the they made, they made a, a, a wax model to shoot his fingers off, but uh, it's definitely yeah. uh, James Bond in the close-ups. They weren't they weren't going to make a wax model of quality enough that it could stand up to close-ups. Yeah, but yeah, we but it interesting is a whole pre-title sequence is given over to Scaramanga and Knickknack and their weird playhouse thing they have that Nick Knickknack apparently is is gonna he he inherits all of this if, yeah. if scaramanga dies and he navigates a criminal a gangster who honestly just looks like he's taking out like batman the tv series he's, italian mobster guy he's actually the guy in diamonds are forever who throws plenty of tool out of the hotel window and he says i don't know oh, there's yes. a pool down there that's the same i i like to think it's the same character but it's the same actor who plays both roles could could be there's I mean there's no need not to he sees a a mobster and he worships Al Capone he sees a yeah. picture of him and pays his respect <laughs> but yeah it's you have the whole fun housing which of course is really setting up the finale so there's kind of a mirroring yeah. element within the film okay. which is point points towards something of a structure within what we will or otherwise consider to be something of a messy Bond film yeah it's a very unusual um, intro because you're dropped you don't know any of these characters uh, you're dropped into this unfamiliar world there's and we find out that yeah Nicknack wants to inherit the island if Scaramanga dies so he's hiring hitmen and mobsters to come to the island for an opportunity to kill Scaramanga but it's also like sort of a playful a playful bet that they have together where you know Scaramanga is able to challenge himself and see if he can get out of the situation alive so yeah. it's a it's a very weird and perverse it's, it's relationship weird, but yeah, I, I think weird, it kind of works yeah it's, it's an interesting setup and also but it's like again this weird tug between kind of a, a trying to be a more serious kind of buttoned down bond and also being a broadly comedic James Bond. Uh, I mean, this is the same relationship that Inspector Clouseau has with Cato in the Pink Panther where Cato like <laughs> sneaks up on him and tries to attack him. And, and that's like a joke, a running gag. And it's, this is the same relationship laid out. And it's a sort of, uh, it's weird and it's, it's interesting. And it's just, a, it's not really, played out well because like I say it's interesting because I mean Nicknack has a, a benefit to getting Scaramanga killed but it doesn't really become major decision weight as the film goes on um, yeah so yeah but but anyhow it lays out it certainly our our villain is is laid out and then we then we skip into our title sequence yeah which... Scaramanga kills a gangster smash cut to this Uh. Yeah, there's a reason no one talks about this one. Yeah, this is um, this is easily one of the one of the worst Bond themes ever. 
Yeah, which uh, to be fair, John Barry apparently did. Yeah, he he would agree with us on that. He was not fond of it either. Apparently, I think yeah. he had three weeks start to finish to put it together. So yeah, it feels rushed. The horns are just too loud and brassy. It's uh, Lulu is great. Lulu the singer is is just. I don't know. It's it's a I mean, crazy fucking song. It, it is a weird song. I think Lulu, I mean, she, she belts it the way that, you know, I think it's kind of in lead with what Bassey and Tom Jones have done before, but, the, like, the lyrics, I don't have the lyrics in front of me, but it's all bad dick puns, basically. Yeah. Like, I mean, the man with the golden gun already starts off as kind of one of those, yeah. but they get much more explicit and convoluted simultaneously in the lyrics to this film. Yeah, he. I mean, he comes just before the kill. That's what. That's what one of the lines goes. Uh, oh yeah, there little, you go. Little, all right, I'm gonna. I'm gonna stop this to spare our viewers uh, or listeners rather. Um, <laughs> so yeah, a little bit. Yeah, like you mentioned, John Barry is not a fan of the, or was not a fan of the song. He was expressed great disappointment with the song and how the score turned out. And uh, also, uh, one of the only Bond songs to not chart on either the U.S. or U.K. singles chart. Uh, so that was a resounding failure there as well. Um, sure. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I think that's uh, very deserving yeah. of a song that sounds like crap. Yeah, um, otherwise the title sequence very much uh, very much as typical. Although there's one shot of, like, a nude woman twirling in, and I can't, I can't remember where exactly within it is, but it just looks like she's not very comfortable doing it. Yeah. And it just, it just looks like, it just looks like a goofy kind of a thing. It's a, like a messy dance She's sequence. like in, it's a, her silhouette in front of like a sparking volcano, if I recall correctly. <laughs> a uh, thing that is not in this film. There yeah, are no, vol- for no. one, for one Bond film, this <laughs> does not have a volcano. No. All right. So after that pre-tile sequence, so you might you might think, okay, the pre-tile sequence. What is this movie? What is going on? There's no explanation. Don't worry. James Bond is here. He's here to give you the largest exposition dump I've ever heard in two <laughs> minutes. He's asked by M. Have he's, has he ever heard of Francisco Scaramanga? And he goes on like a ninety-second rant about <laughs> rattling off all the information about the man with the golden gun. Uh, complete with, I don't think we mentioned this, but he has a third nipple is his only identifying mark, which yes, does not seem like, one's... yeah, does not seem like it'd be useful in any way. Yeah. How did that sneak through as the, the one identifying factor that, that went through the back channels of international intelligence? Like he's got a third nipple. Yeah. They don't have a photo on file, but they know he has a third nipple. Anyways. That's... Uh, yeah. I... That, yeah. that, that is a, a strange one. And, and of course, Scaramanga's backstory is the most ridiculous backstory. I mean, in, in a franchise characterized by these things, he is the, the son of a circus ringmaster and a, an English snake charming woman. Yeah. Uh, and was raised in a circus and became a crack trick shot artist who then became an assassin for hire. He was trained by the KGB because it wasn't enough to just be a trick shot art, artist. The, the KGB, the Russians, had to take him in. <laughs> so, because why not? And yeah. now he he he's a contract killer, and he charges one million dollars per hit. Nice yeah. round number. And he uses a golden gun, which is made up of a uh, recalling from memory a lighter, a cigarette case, a pen, and the cufflink from his suit forms the trigger. And he loads it with one single golden bullet, which he has custom made. And lo and behold, he has mailed a custom bullet to James Bond's attention implying that he would like to murder or dual bond. But anyways... Yeah. Yeah. Which is, in, in other cases, a statistical 
thing because uh, like the old Blackadder joke is uh, you know they say there's a bullet with your name on it so if you carve your name into that bullet or have that bullet otherwise in your possession then technically you're safe uh, yeah. statistically so hmm screwed up there Scaramanga not the yeah not the case here anyways Bond <laughs> knows that another double O agent was killed by a golden bullet so he goes to Beirut where he meets a belly dancer who uh, for some odd reason kept the bullet that killed the man she was making love with as her good luck charm and has turned it into a navel ring. Yeah, that, that what, doesn't what make a lot of sense. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's her good luck charm that she pulled out of the wall before the police arrived. My after charm! charm! After it shot the guy through the neck. They also mention another point that these are dumb, dumb rounds, like hollow pointed rounds. I don't know about the ballistic properties of gold. It's a really soft metal. I don't think it would work as a bullet generally anyway. Yeah. But uh, leaving Firing that aside, yeah, yeah, a lot, leaving that aside, like a, a you know hollow point round, I mean, this must have been a like the guy got shot in the neck and it went through and got buried in the wall. This must have been a grisly, horrific spectacle, and she still managed to pluck it out of the wall and turn it into jewelry. Yeah. Um, so she does want honestly. She should get her own series of movies. Um, she seems like someone we should find out more about. But um, yes, she she belly dances and she seduces Bond and Bond seduces her. Although he's really only interested in getting her her jewelry right. before he gets jumped by three henchmen, aka um, properly retrieving crime or evidence from a crime scene. But yes, yeah, the yes. jewelry. Yeah. He's the jewelry, indeed. Yeah, so and Bond has to he he smoothly starts kissing down her body and then he gets his mouth up to her belly button. Then these three guys come into the dressing room they're in, club Bond over the head. He swallows. The bullet, and then a fight ensues. And there's a fight. And this, this again, brings me to, like, I, I'm going to talk a lot about, I think, this this strange, uneven division between serious Bond, joke Bond. We have, like, a pretty, pretty brutish fist fight here. You know, he, like, smashes a guy's head repeatedly off a wall. Yeah. Uh, smashes a glass over a guy's head, um... You know, it's it's pretty it's pretty rough and tumble. It's not a great choreographed scene. There's definitely much better punch ups in in previous James Bond movies. But uh, it then concludes with James Bond catching a taxi to the pharmacist so he can get laxatives, presumably so he can shit out a gold yeah. bullet, which yeah. is I'm I'm not aware of any of you know most movies that ever heroes. That's just a weird prescription we don't get that scene in the movie we get the scene of him going to the pharmacy we don't get the scene after that which would have changed the the context very much no <laughs> no did you notice in the fight scene uh the gaff with the mirror i did not was there, there oh, something going wrong oh there my, oh yes so bond throws there's a mirror kind of angled away from where the camera is shooting Bond throws a guy into the table of the dressing room with a mirror on it, and the mirror turts or turts or turns <laughs> towards the camera, revealing the cameraman, the crew, the entire lighting equipment setup. There's like six people in the shot that should not be there. So maybe maybe YouTube that fight scene, the I man with the golden gun dressing room, yeah, man with the golden gun dressing room fight. Look for the look for the mirror to reveal the entire crew on the set. It's well, it's, it's just just as well they're all on Bond's side because he could barely handle the three yet to take out in the room. That's true. Yeah, Moore is uh, not the best fighter, but they could have uh, could have lend him a hand. Honestly, yeah, God, so okay, Bond, journalists. Uh, yeah, Bond uh, shoots out a golden bullet, um, which it just like the shape of it does not look like it could safely pass through somebody's colon and I don't want to really dig deeper than that but it looks like it would be an uncomfortable mission to get that out of there 
Um, Back to the stuck in her navel to begin with. I mean, this is go. This is oh, yeah. rough for Mr. Bond. I gotta admit. Yeah, Sympathies. was that pinned on or something? I don't know. Anyways, Bond Bond brings the bullet back to Q. They determine it was uh, made by a guy named Lazar who lives in Macau. Uh, Bond goes to Macau and interrogates Lazar by uh, aiming a uh, rifle that's calibrated for a man with three fingers at his groin, so that when Bond fires it, it aim the bullets purposely go low. Uh, yeah, that's, a very overcomplicated kind of a setup. I mean, this is kind of, it's not a terrible scene, honestly, but I, I, I always think it's kind of funny. I think it was done best in probably Termin- the Terminator is probably the one scene that played this well. But um, this whole concept of guys who are surrounded by guns, just letting people test out the guns as if there isn't a problem there that they might, like, turn on them, which is exactly what happens, you know. So he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, go play with the gun, Mr. Bond. And it's like, oh, why are you pointing a gun at me? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> this guy yeah. does this for a living. Yeah, anyways, uh, Lazar has... I am I am burning through this film because I, I, I <laughs> quite frankly do not want to live in this one. Uh, so I apologize if you get a shorter episode tonight, folks, but we're... Uh, we're going to blaze through because there's also – we didn't even mention that uh, because of Bond's threat against his life, he's being taken off of his assignment to track down Gibbon, who is uh, the creator of a Solex agitator, which can create – convert the solar energy into new new reusable energy, which is based off of an actual like gas crisis that happened in 1973. So this yes. film is already horribly dated because it was topical only to then. And for some odd reason, the solar crisis that Bond was previously investigating is now also tied into the Scaramanga business because he's controlling the Solex agitator on his island. That is like very, such a bizarre coincidence. It, it feels very lazy. Yes, it, it, yeah, it's, it's lazy because, I mean, it's kind of a clever thing earlier on where, or, you know, kind of a little clever quirk to the script that Bond has decommissioned. He's taken off this case. Mm-hmm. Um, to, for his safety, but then there's kind of a nod and a wink where M is basically saying, like, you're not on this case, which means you're now free to track down Scaramanga, that there's this. Yeah. That's what's actually happening. And that's, and you know, it's a clever little interchange between them that kind of, you know, these two characters know each other well. Cool. But then it turns out that this, this mission that was dropped that really was just a MacGuffin, this, it remains a MacGuffin for the whole thing, it, you know, becomes, you know, slides back in as, as something that we're supposed to care about as we find the Solex agitator in the possession of various different parties throughout the film as Bond tries to track it down before eventually getting it on James Bond Island. Yeah, yeah. It's, it doesn't, it's an unnecessary element. There's plenty between just this this interplay between Bond and, and his would-be assassin. I mean, that's that's plenty. Why do we need another threat? <laughs> exactly. That's a whole movie there. Have them meet earlier and then have the ser- the movie just be a series of just one-off confrontations between the two of them besting each other. That's infinitely more interesting to me. Sure. <sighs> yeah. miss- missed opportunity. Anyways, Bond tracks down <laughs> the woman buying the bullets is played by Maud Adams. She's uh, Scaramanga's woman and right-hand lady. Uh, he follows her to a casino in Hong Kong, and this is where Bond... Uh, brutally interrogates her by twisting her arm and slapping her, which uh, 
it just feels really out of place. It like feels, it's just I can I can imagine Connery n- nailing a scene like this. As bad as it sounds, that would not feel out of place in in a Sean Connery film. But no, he's he did that in earlier films, and it was yeah. You know, there's still I mean, all, all these films are you know no, <laughs> the gender politics of them not great. They're not very progressive, but at least they had a, an internal kind of consistency tonally. Um, but it doesn't. It, like Roger Moore just looks like he's just there to hang out, you know, and then suddenly does this. It's a bit bit weird, a bit rude. It's very rude. Roger Moore doesn't seem like a rude person. Yeah. Uh so I think it's around this point we're introduced to our other Bond girl in the film, uh Brett Eckland, who's playing Mary Goodnight, which it's also worth, uh, let's just mention well Maud Adams, uh who's Bond girl, who's Scaramanga's right right hand person left hand i guess knickknack right hand so she must be left hand that's fair uh, and her name her name is andrea anders which is just a name honestly um how did that happen she didn't even get a good bond girl name as brett eklund plays mary goodnight which is a dumb name but appropriate for the setup um yeah and they're both it's- swedish they they went to sweden for this one obviously yeah they're so like, yeah they both got scandinavian representation and and this is also something I, I did not check the year on this, but I think I'm correct in saying this is an unofficial Wicker Man sequel because Brick, Brick Eklund and Christopher Lee have returned together. That's true. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're one year after '74. That's right. Wicker Man was '73. So, and Brit Eklund was pregnant uh, in Wicker Man, I believe. She was. She so, required a body double for much of her nude scene. She did. Yes, but, uh, indeed. So, so that she she recovered swiftly um, as a parent in this film. Oh yeah. But anyhow, her yeah, her, so, her stomach is insanely toned when she's wearing yeah. a bikini in the last third act of this film. Definitely not to get too crude, but I mean, honestly, it's probably one of the highlights. Frame was going to check out one of these movies to begin with. Uh, that's like let's let's sell it where it goes. Britt Eklund is pretty pretty okay yeah and but, but otherwise bond, i think goodnight's just a terrible character oh she's yeah useless oh, absolutely. She's, she's an idiot she's annoying it's a, yeah. it's terrible and bond is just an absolute like he's he, like any other roger moore film he would be playfully teasing her but he, this he's like constantly fed up with her bs and he's always <laughs> pissed off at her yeah she's in, she's, she, she's introduced yeah. in a reasonably Good, like in a reasonable way that he meets up with her and he gives her the details of a car that he wants her to track and she immediately clicks and she brings him to a hotel because she recognizes the car he described is the one of a fleet of cars for this hotel and she says you know I've been working here two years local knowledge and this you know this asserts that she could be she's a useful agent who can do useful things and that's like the last thing of any purpose she does in the entire film after that, she's just a bumbling moron who just kind of ends up in danger and Bond has to save her. Like, it, yeah. it's just... Although, um, getting on ahead, uh, she does nearly kill him at one point in an amusing fashion, so I will... I'll give bonus points for that. At least that was something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's... it. I mean, honestly, um, uh, like, Andre Anders, the other Bond girl, she's a little more interesting. She doesn't have a huge amount of kind of to do in the film but she's living in fear of Scaramanga she wants to break free or or we think she does there's that usual kind of duality of is she playing it up or not but it, it turns out that she is actually fearful of him and would like to 
get away from him. It's a more interesting character, and it's kind of a, this, it, this. I guess they're trying to go for a distinct contrast. Um, that Maud Adams is a brunette, kind of darker complexion, Brit Eklund, kind of bubbly blonde. Um, yeah, but it it just like basically Mary Goodnight is. We we wish her would go good night early on and maybe just not show up again and that would have been that would have been just fine yeah that's fair anyways um, interesting point actually is that Maud Adams yeah. this is actually she shows up in three Bond films which is unusual she so, does that's um, right she will later be she will later be Octopussy and she shows up as an extra just in in A View to a Kill so that's three Bond films she managed to show up in and um, Britt Eklund will have to uh, I guess she'll she'll have to make do with the fact that she was married to a Bond in real life to Peter Sellers who was in uh, <laughs> which ugh, I cannot imagine uh, I, we've discussed previously Peter Sellers, and I just I find him a difficult character to stomach, even on screen. I could only imagine it would be like to marry, be married to the guy. But it's funny you mention if, funny you mention Sellers because I was having Casino Royale '67 flashbacks watching parts of this movie. It's most same. It's, it's most evident in the the Scaramanga's Funhouse sequences because it looks like that that weird uh, MC Escher style room that Peter Sellers yeah. is tortured in in sure, Casino Royale. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's, um, the, the, I think they both have some conscious nods to kind of expressionist cinema. Um, there's a whole German sequence in Casino Royale where they go to the spy school that's full of all kinds of weird German expressionist yeah, yeah. designs and, you know, off kilter, force perspective set element details. Um, and yeah, and, and honestly, and I will not, I, as people would know if they listen to the Casino Royale episode, um, uh, I'm not, prone to praising that film but honestly the set design and everything in that film is vastly better than the fun house here i think it's a much it's a much more interesting thing i will in terms of um sets we have another one which we'll get to which is uh, the sunken ship set that's much more successful and unfortunately is kind of a yeah. throwaway gag kind of a throwaway kind of setting they don't really do much with it they couldn't have a chase through it or something which could have been really interesting uh, it just feels like there's so much missed opportunity here like there there are points of interest and they're just they never gel together in any kind of a, a interesting or you know kind of noteworthy way yeah so let's fast let's fast forward there bond is supposed to meet scaramanga at a club called bottoms up um, and that while there, Scaramanga kills a guy who's revealed to be uh, Gibbon or Gibson, the creator of the Solix Agitator. He was actually currently with Lieutenant Hip, who's a British Secret Service agent undercover as a Hong Kong police officer. And he arrests Bond for being on the scene with a gun, takes him to the half-submerged uh, Queen Mary ship, where we find out it's actually a secret uh, lair that MI6 is using as a base of operations in Hong Kong because, quote, they, it's the only place where they're not bothered by the Chinese or the Americans. And they've, as you mentioned, they've refurnished the entire interior of this ship to work so that everything is at a weird slant. Yeah, because the ship, the, the it's the uh, the RMS Queen Elizabeth, I believe, is the Elizabeth, ship that sank. Yeah. Yes, yeah, other Queen, whatever. But anyway, it sank in Hong Kong Harbor. This is a real thing that happened in the seventies. This huge ship sank, yeah. but it partially sank. So it's a so it's, it's kind of sticking out, but it's like on its side, listed in the bay. So they they built, they imagined what the interior of the ship would be like if they were working. So, so all the doors and everything are like a forty five degree angle, but obviously the the floor has been leveled off. So everything is just 
everyone stands and moves around as normal, but the whole walls and everything just are at a weird angle. And it's a really interesting set. It's it's like that's a kind of a fun secret agenty kind of like what if get smart kind of uh, <laughs> yeah. element. It also uh, it also continues the trope established in Thunderball where. Every time Bond goes to meet MI6 somewhere in the field, M has a desk set up there, including a desk set up in one of the tilted rooms of this ship. It's M's desk. Yeah. It's probably probably the senior officer, but they just have to give it up whenever M shows up. That's, probably, yeah, that's true. probably pissed off when the next office over. Yeah. But, uh, you know, what are you going to do? M is, he's, he's the boss man. That's right. So, um, so Bond, uh, learns that, I, I forget how he learns, not that the specifics really matter, that, uh, <laughs> Scaramanga Nothing is, matters. Scaramanga's working with high fat, a, uh, I, I don't have a notes other than businessman. Um, so yeah, he's a wealthy Chinese businessman. Yeah. That's basically his entire character. So Bond gets one of the few gadgets in this film, which is a third nipple that he uses to infiltrate High Fat's compound and make them believe that he's Scaramanga because they see the third nipple when Bond takes his shirt off, which is uh, uncomfortable, uh, to say the least. It's uh, a weird one for sure. He also throws it away right after he leaves, which I'm like, yeah. maybe you'll need it again. Like, how many of these do they make? But anyway. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> that's it. And that's like, that's the last payoff that the third nipple really has in the movie is that yeah, Bond uses it as undercover. And, and, it's, and it's revealed that uh, Scaramanga's there anyway, so it was completely, like, Bond was one-upped anyway, so it didn't matter. But it was, like, kind of, kind of some... some whatever spy gadgetry stuff to begin with i'm still high fat like do you think it's a pun i have a vote (laughs) i mean he's he's kind of a i'm now i'm not i can't even picture the guy is he easy kind of a portly gentleman not overly no 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 i just i just don't get it i i mean i don't know like we we meet in the pool uh she's not really a bond girl because she honestly has such a tiny role okay well this is this is a pun Yes, that's a that's a pun. We meet Chew Me, who is uh, just a girl swimming in a pool. But yeah. then Chew Me to high fat. Like I feel are like high fat Chew Me. Do they like? I feel like this is a, this is a symbolic of the film as a whole. That it's like this connection that in a writer's room maybe fitted together some way, and they were like, it's kind of a joke, and they just sort of it just stayed in there. Like there's no rapport that like these two characters never talk. No one cracks a joke about anyone's name or anything though bond does later make fun of a uh, wine uh well i can't it's like foo yuck or something and he, he makes fun of that because he's racist <laughs> basically yeah brandy brandy swilling westerner um but yeah it's, it's i don't know it just it just feels to me like these kind of goofy names it's sort of strange that we have one of the most normally named bond girls and then we have these other characters that have names that I'm not entirely I, sure if they, like, I don't know if it's just poor, you know, kind of pseudo-racist things, or they're just, like, misappropriated puns, but it seems like they did no no research. And it's something, actually, I kind of want to, like, something that struck me, but strikes me about this film, and it really becomes evident at this point in the film, 
Um, one of the main strengths of the Bond films is obviously they, they're glow-popping films. They go all over the world. Each Bond film is kind of set in a different part of the world. Right. So this, this film is primarily set in Thailand. Thailand and China, Hong Kong and some mainland China. Yeah. So, um, and this is new. They've never been there for any of the previous Bond films. Um, so this is all new territory. But they seem to run out of ideas for it so quickly um, that they just start recycling at this point that James Bond meets sumo wrestlers uh, in the garden for who, they're from Japan which they already did and you only live twice um, there's you know a kung fu school where the people know karate which also is Japanese it's like they know so like there's no there's nothing here that really takes advantage of the local attributes now they do with the big kung fu fight sequences that come in just a little bit after this that kind of are riding the wave of the popularity of kung fu films bruce lee and people are in ascendancy at this point yeah but like i just feel like this this section like another mark against this film is i think um it's around the section there's some dancers in traditional thai garb and that's about the only thing in the film that really has yeah, and there and it's just there it's a very brief sequence it's not like any major thing but like other than that the film feels to just how like, it has no idea what to do with its setting no yeah this is like this is a very confused film because like you mentioned uh, our previous film live and let die was a take on black exploitation films this is obviously its biggest influence is I, I you could say bruce lee's end of the dragon from a year previously this was all about yeah. kung fu movies so yeah there's an entire interlude that is set at a kung fu school but i mean this is also the film where uh bond is like seemingly met his match in the field because there's a killer assassin who's also like bond and, and yeah and it's a lot yeah, of, it's, there's a lot of bizarre elements that just do not come together for this movie no, they, they, don't, they don't link yeah they don't link together and like and it's just like it it barely even it can't even coast on its its exotic locales i mean it all feels it just feels like there's just no spark like it never came together um yeah. You know, so much as like you only live twice, for example, when they went to Japan. Sure, okay, maybe not that, you know, impressive, but like you could check off all of the like Japanese tropes you would expect. The ninjas, the geishas, the sumo, the you know, the pagodas, you know, all of the, you know, kind of the, the Zen gardens. They're all there, all in check. And then yeah. this film is kind of like, it's Thailand. What's in Thailand? hell if we know uh just stuff we that's kind of stuff that's also in japan um, and china a bit in between that's about it you know like it there's no like it feels like they didn't do any research at all they didn't you know even hit the local markets and like find anything yeah. which really you know it, so again and it's just a, since the storyline isn't pulling up its weight uh, it doesn't. It doesn't have that element either. There's, the, you know, it doesn't have the local scenery to to help pull it along either. Yeah, it's weird because uh, this, so this is a story that one of the producers of the film, uh, Harry Saltzman, who we should say uh, Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli later split their partnership after this film, and then mm -hmm. Broccoli it became just all about the Broccoli's producing these films on their own. So this is Harry Saltzman's last film uh, with uh, EON Productions. Uh, apparently while visiting Thailand, he noticed that there were elephants and he thought, okay, the film would be great if there was an elephant chase. Uh, so he learned that in order for elephants to run through an urban landscape, they have to wear special shoes. So he ordered 2000 pairs of elephant shoes 
And then he completely forgot about telling anyone about the sequence. So when 2,000 pairs of elephant shoes arrived, they had no idea what they were for. And they ended up owing the elephant shoe guy a lot of money. And it took him like 20 years to finally pay him off. But yeah, that's just, just just like the wealth of like bad ideas. Like they, they just kind of pick and choose different elements without putting any thought to them. This is one of the... yeah. And thousand elephant shoes. That's that's a lot of damn elephants he had planned. But yeah. at the same at the same time, elephants are the national symbol of Thailand. So like I wish that was in there. That would at least have been yeah. something. You know, like there I don't recall if there's an elephant visible in this. There film. there is. Place. There's an elephant that starts picking Sheriff J.W. Pepper's pocket. That's, I'd forgotten, but there, that's right. There is an elephant that does there's, that. There's one, there. and it's like a baby elephant too. A it's baby not elephant, an, an yeah. adult. So we're getting and again, ahead. yeah, we're getting ahead. We're, we're getting, getting, ahead getting to you know obviously our favorite part, which Bond. is of course Sheriff J W Pepper. But before we get there, Bond is incapacitated by a bunch, a trio of sumo wrestlers. Well, one of them is Nick Knack, and um, Bond tries to defeat one of them by giving him a wedgie. Uh, but Nick Knack just kind of knocks him unconscious with a, with a pitchfork. And before they can kill Bond, they decide they're going to take Bond to Kung Fu School, where he will be seemingly beat to death by the students. Yes. <laughs> Which, if there's ever, like, a, a trope where the villain puts the hero in a situation he can escape, this is the worst one of those. Let's is put him in Kung Fu School so he can hopefully not beat his way out of it. Yeah, it's, it's like, honestly, as my attention ebbed and flowed through this film... You know, uh, it's glad because I, I checked back and I was like, why is he in Kung Fu school? Like, how did this sequence start happening? And I was like, did I miss something? And I kind of like rewound back a little bit and was like, no, I didn't really miss anything. There's no reason for this sequence to lead off from the previous one. It's just what they're doing now. Um, and they do have an extensive sequence of Kung Fu demonstrations and so on. They do predate the kind of, or predate the kind of Indiana Jones famous gag with the guy with the sword who does his really ornate sword routine and then Indiana Jones just shoots him. Um I like very, this, yeah. Yeah, so so we have a similar gag here that involves, you know, a very skilled martial artist doing a big routine and then Roger Moore very awkwardly kicks him in the face. Roger Moore does not pass as a martial artist expert. Uh by any means, but he he takes this guy down, and then yeah, we have a series of we have a one a, a more pronounced fight there where he actually has, has to do some work yeah. before uh, before Lieutenant Hip and his two kung fu nieces oh, show up that. to rescue him in a giant in a giant brawl where the three of them pretty much uh, the two women particularly take out basically an entire dojo of of combatants. Yeah, now Jack, you're I would say that you're. You're a kind of guy who really appreciates a good action film, and you you admire the aesthetics of action and how choreography works. Would you say that the two kung fu schoolgirls are the least credible fighters you've ever seen in a movie? <laughs> well, well, we did have Roger Moore in the previous. We did have Roger so. Moore, but these girls are about four foot nine, and they're like kicking guys and flipping them over with. Like, just the most half-assed kicks and punches I've ever seen. It, it it's, is. It's a very messy sequence. And yeah, it, does, it doesn't hold up. Certainly Bambi and Thumper, these girls ain't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> those sequences were bad. At least those women had, like, a, a physicality, like, a sense that, you know, they oh, could yeah. do something. Yeah, this, this is... It, it's just very scrappy, messy 
kung fu. Like in, in this, in, like this kind of a sequence, honestly, is the sort of thing that in in a lot of like Hong Kong, like real Hong Kong action films, would be kind of a throwaway sort of a you know kind of fracas that would then you know narrow down into like maybe two major characters would like run away from it and then have a real fight somewhere and that would just be like the messy setup for it but this is kind of like a legit action sequences within this um and it's just yeah it's it's totally unsatisfying i mean honestly the action throughout this film there's no punch or bravura to it um with one exception we'll get to with that famous car stunt. Yeah. Other than that, like, this really... Like, all of the sequences, the fighting, the... You know, all the all of it is just very... Well, it just feels very scrappy and, and, and careless. And kind of lethargic, too. Just yeah, with the weight yeah. thrown behind each punch. It's... As, yeah, we, we think about, like, fine. stuff... Again, like, I think of... I, I, I seem to keep coming back to You Only Live Twice, but it provides the useful references for this. But, like, there's such great punchiness in like the office fight near the beginning of that film which is just you know it's not like it's really complex choreography but it just captures it well and then when he runs through the docks in that film and the camera pulls back and we get that fantastic aerial shot like there's no moment like that that elevates this this is very much like it just like say it feels lethargic it just feels like people have run out of steam run out of ideas they're kind of everything in this feels familiar or just confusing like <laughs> confusing in the bad way not in the like novel fun way or in the like why why uh kind of way when it isn't already yeah. like i say feeling like something that's kind of well-worn territory indeed all right yeah anyways pond escapes <laughs> he gets on a boat uh he threatens the guys chasing him with the uh the motor of the boat he points at their faces and says it looks like what we have here is a mexican screw-off for speeding away in his boat, which is a, a dumb pun. Um, the boat starts slowing down, and then a little boy trying to sell a wooden elephant climbs into the boat, and uh, <laughs> this is part of Bond being an asshole in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Bond, he, the little boy's trying to sell this elephant, and he eventually brings his price down to 20 baht, and Bond says, I'll give you 20,000 baht if you can make this thing go faster. And then the boy turns on I like a fuel injector system that starts powering up the boat. And uh, Bond basically says thanks and then throws the boy into the water. <sighs> oh, bloody foreigners. Yeah. You. But and, yeah, it's, yeah, it plays back into the Bond being a little bit more mean-spirited. I don't know. It's, it's it, That actually, like, as a joke, that kind of... It's one of the better ones in the film. I think it lands it's a little a, bit better. Yeah, it's a playful mean-spiritedness, but... It is. Still. And this and this joins us in then with, uh, with for some reason, with... with uh, What's Sheriff? Sheriff J.W. Pepper. J.W. Pepper Louisiana Sheriff is on holiday in Thailand with his wife, buying a car... What, like, why? What? Can, can we understand why they decided all people to bring in, like, try and make a recurring character that it would be the just loudmouth, like, dip chewing, obscene, fat, gross, stupid, redneck stereotype? It, it from... had to have been. It had to have been at the time. Just that his reactions must have just killed theaters and live and let die in 1971. And Broccoli and Saltzman are like, oh, we, we, we got to get him back in. I mean, 
any excuse why he would be in Thailand. We don't care. We need pepper in this film. I feel like, like, yeah, I, I'm wondering is, because I've, I've built up this, my, my best defense mechanism, I'm trying to come up with a reason for this, is like I feel like maybe they were being asked to cater more to American audiences and maybe bring Felix Leiter in, you know, he's, you know, as more of like a, a, yeah. a real character to, you know, give America more credibility within the series because America's, you know, doesn't really do much in American audiences like Americans. Um, and I feel like, you know, like the best I can come up with is like, oh, we'll give you an American and they come up with the most just terrible character they can. But I don't think that's actually why. I think you're probably right that just people, people liked him. And I mean, Clifton James leans into it playing J.W. Pepper. I mean, it's, he's a, just a ridiculous character. Yeah. But he, but, uh, you know, it, like as a throwaway thing, like he shows up at first and it's like, oh, it's him again. Okay, why not? But then he keeps showing up and he ends up riding with James Bond for a while and it's like oh this is actually happening there this is like a thing he's not just this and just a throwaway gag this is the whole sequence they've brought him in for yeah so just through a series of twists and turns Scaramanga kills Hyphat takes over his company then he kills uh Maude Adams for betraying his location to Bond this leads Bond to give chase uh in a car against Scaramanga and seem, seemingly picks up the car that Sheriff J.W. Pepper is trying to buy in Thailand. Uh, mind you, he's got to ship that <laughs> thing back to Louisiana. Don't and, know how that's happening, yeah. Yeah, so the pretty extensive car chase happens. I don't know if you noticed the shots of the, like, the wide shots of the streets. There's just a, a gaggle of extras lined up just to watch the production film a car chase as it goes by, um, which yeah, also happened in Diamonds Are Forever, but... Uh, then we get to uh, the best thing about the movie, which is the uh, the car jump. Yes. Now, uh, Bond discovers he's on another side of a river where Scaramanga has gotten away. There's a broken half bridge, which not even like a half, like just the beginning <laughs> and the end of the bridge are only there. And they're in like a perfect like a complete cork, yeah, corkscrew rotation. Yeah. Bridges aren't built like that. They don't look like that when they fall. None of this makes sense, particularly that there's a corresponding corkscrew on the other side. But we'll leave all that aside. Whatever. Yeah, so Bond backs his car up. Uh, Sheriff J.W. Pepper says, like, oh, you can't be serious. And Bond <laughs> goes, I sure am, boy. That's the other thing, too. He's back. He's calling people boy. And he, he calls, like, every Asian character, he bumps into a pointy head, which is <laughs> fucking awful. It, it uh, is. But to be fair, J.W. Pepper also, while on vacation in Southeast Asia, at yeah. one point mentions Kissinger. So, um, <laughs> yeah, he's he's a monster. He also, he also says when his wife wants to buy one of the wooden elephants, he says, uh, no, we can't do that. We're Democrats. Is that the Dem- that, but the- he said he says that oh. yeah that oh is- man that's southern wow that's old school democrats yeah. oh wow yeah but uh, real uh, real how, how times have changed anyway thing there uh, but anyhow yeah he's a terrible character and i wish i wish he I was wish never him- there yeah and uh well <laughs> but yeah. anyway the car jump the yes. car so the car goes over the jump this is absolutely the highlight it's a beautiful little Stunt. It's very simple, elegant, but obviously not simple to actually set up and drive. The stunt driver did it in one take, just corkscrewed the car, so it does a perfect barrel roll and lands. It's just, 
it's shot in one shot, just one single take, which I think is great. Like, there's no cut to inside the car or anything to disturb the, like, just the the beauty of the kind of movement of the car through the air. Like, it's just, it's, everything's done right, except they decided, mm, you know what would be good with this? A slide whistle. <laughs> yeah. And that's what happened. They it's... put a slide whistle over the stunt because um, there are various reports, but I think it was John Barry who said that he felt that maybe the stunt was a bit over the top, so he felt a slide whistle would sell it kind of comically. Uh, I don't get it. It's a terrible decision. And apparently everyone later on said they regretted it. Everyone, yeah. Everyone regrets <laughs> it. It's, this is, to me, this is emblematic of the man with the golden gun as a whole. It's, sure. it's one step forward. Two steps back. They have a good <laughs> idea, and then they ruin it with the in the worst yeah. possible way. Everything's compromised here, and that is like just if you're watching it, just have your finger over the mute button, and just as the car hits the ramp, hit the mute button, and just yeah. watch that beauty just, fly. Just and admire then you can it. Turn it back on again afterwards. It's just it's such a terrible idea, but it, it but it is a great stunt, and it's. You know, I mean, sure, okay, it's a little bit mild probably by today's standards, but like, it's a great practical stunt. They stuntman got in a car and did that. Uh, no no stand-ins here. Apparently this is also, it's, it's a stunt that, um, I was reading up on this, that apparently it's maybe the first car stunt that was actually planned using computer modeling. Yeah. Which is an interesting thing. It's great. Like, the stunt, like, the car itself, they had to basically remove everything from the car, and they restructured its, the internal organs of the car so that the guy, the driver, could basically drive it while lying down in the middle so that the car was perfectly balanced. And because if he was just driving it normally, it would never have worked. So it, it was it was like they constructed an entire car interior to to accommodate the stunt. And it 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 uh, god damn the slide whistle! It works so good. It it is. It's the only thing that I feel is like. You you talk to me a month or two after this. The only thing I'm going to remember about this movie is the car. I'm hoping it's the only thing I remember. It's the only thing I want to remember from this movie. Yeah. Anyway, so this movie's fading fast. Uh, I, we should mention, I guess, Goodnight gets kidnapped for getting knocked into Scaramanga's trunk. That's true. They do go to a Mai Thai boxing match where she's kidnapped from, which I guess is another actual Thai thing, but it's sort of so kind of perfunctory in the background it doesn't even matter yeah but it's like like another it's like the third fighting thing that this film has done after (laughs) Kung Fu and Sumo it's ticking all of its boxes it's true it's only a matter of time you shows up like a boxing and an MMA and then a kangaroo boxing and then some women mud wrestling they could have just wrung it out for the whole movie yeah so uh, they're able to trace Goodnight back to Scaramanga's Island where Bond lands a seaplane on the island He's greeted by Scaramanga and Knickknack, and this is, we get one of those, uh, the villain is hospitable to the hero for We, we should probably mention that, that Scaramanga got back there by strapping a pair of fucking wings oh, to right. his old station wagon yeah, and they, flying like, it out. Yeah, drilled wings onto, the, onto their vehicle and turned it into an aircraft. Which is just, it's a... It's one of those things that like seems cool but isn't cool at all. It really, is. it's just not. A, it's not a cool car. Like they have flying cars in later spy movies and James Bond. Oh know, yeah, boat cars and stuff. But this literally is just like, what if your dad's car had some wings sticking out of the roof? Yeah, it's like that would look like my dad's car with some wings sticking out of the roof, and that's basically the special effect for it. And they fly and good night. I don't even understand because Goodnight yeah. thinks she's, she's in the, the trunk. Mis- 
the most mystifying thing she says I think we've stopped and then she uh, opens the trunk and it turns out she's flying through the air it's like you thought they'd stopped well, what noise would you get in the trunk of a car that is flying with two jet engines on each side yeah I mean you would probably suffocate from the lack of oxygen up there not that there's much going to Goodnight's head anyway <laughs> this is true yeah if, if anyone could survive it that character could but yeah it's just another just don't, like it's just a terrible excuse to line up what I think is supposed to be a joke but doesn't even play honestly and yeah. she, she's in the trunk of the car and again she's in the trunk of the car because she's an idiot and she got kidnapped and now yeah. she needs to be rescued again it's, uh, it's like it's like they wrote it like she's a, a thousands of miles up in the air and the arrives are thinking oh man can you imagine the look on this poor woman's face when she realizes she's airborne it'll be great exactly yeah not- and it's, it's such a difficult like they could have just had the trunk pop open or something and she'd be scared or something. But, like, I feel like, you know, instead of putting that line, like, oh, I think we've come to a stop. But it's like, no one would think that. That doesn't make any sense. No. And it's just, it just, again, just shows, like, this... The film was uh, was written by two... Um, we had two scriptwriters. So we had Richard Maybaum and Tom Mankiewicz, who wrote it. And I believe... I don't recall which came to it first, but... Um, they apparently were burned out. They kind of came up with a version of it and they kind of felt they were losing their edge. They, it wasn't working. So it was then completely rewritten by the other. Yeah. And the film the film definitely, I think, carries that weight with it. That it, it feels like someone who wasn't really on their A game and then it was just kind of like beaten into film shape a little bit more by someone else who was probably also not at the top of their game or was a little maybe a little too beholden to what was previously there i don't know but like i say i mean it's a film of compromise like everything here feels like it's the best of it is is dragged down by the worst of it and the worst of it is just absolutely out in the open uh taking up all the space yeah that's the the worst bond film we haven't really talked about writers too much we've mentioned directors names but like the worst bond films tend to have a lot of writers on them um, yeah. which is unfortunate because they'll have somebody with an idea that doesn't work but they keep their original script and then they'll bring two more writers on to punch it up like like just to fast forward 30 years specter has four credited screenwriters on it which i don't think has ever been a good thing um, but we'll uh, we will wait and see in uh, several months' time. Yeah, unless, unless it's an anthology film. Uh, normally, the more writers means uh, if nothing, else, it may not mean necessarily it's going to be a terrible film, but it means it's a film that has just been too many ideas. Yeah, committee groups. Uh, yeah, and just kind of put together to spec. So probably not going to be a very exciting film, That's regardless. True. But anyway, yeah. So we're back at. James Bond Island, which is not James Bond Island yet. Not this movie yet. made it James Bond Island, which is probably its greatest achievement. Um, <laughs> and we have the meetup. Uh, Bond flies in onto a, a, an abandoned beach, but actually, it's pretty much uh, Scaramanga's front door. <laughs> he like flies into this abandoned beach and lands his plane, like he's sneaking up. And then just the door opens, and Scaramanga and Nicknack come out, like, "Oh, glad you made it." Uh, it's very weird kind of a setup. But yeah, and here's where I think the meat of the film should be. Because the whole concept of this... And we, we've had it before, as you said, the cordial villain who, you know, is... is who you know, There's kind of a class element to James Bond yeah. always. You know, that James Bond is an upper upper class, polite, civilized British Empire member. And he, he wanders out into the wilderness of not the British Empire and meets all the savages 
uh, that live among there, but all of his villains are also very well-bred and, and of good stock, but they're villains, and they understand things, and they drink the same kinds of wine, and they, they appreciate the finer things in life. And Scaramanga is, is Scaramanga embodies that in a way that's much more, um, I guess, much, much more loaded, because he's supposed to be this kind of flip side of James Bond as... James Bond is a good patriotic agent and a necessary element of a of a government exercising its authority internationally that you have spies and subterfusion and an ability to exercise your will extrajudicial extrajudicially internationally you know like I mean this is all wrapped up in the idea of secret agents and spying and all of this but then Scaramanga is basically the exact same training but he just kills people for money and he doesn't care. He does no ethos to it, you know. Whereas governments supposedly have ethos. Yeah, this is uh, obviously you may you may pull this apart at your leisure based on actual real world examples. But yeah, so there's this idea that they're and and Christopher Lee they have dinner and Christopher Lee discusses this and he basically to his mind he sees that James Bond as a fool who's basically missing a payday by doing it for just the the honor of the Queen, you know, which is a worthless thing. Um, you know, and there's there's so much they could unpack there, but really, it's just not there. There's it, there's nothing else expounded in it. Yeah, yeah, it, and yeah, it's great. And Christopher Lee is is just he's such a magnetic actor to watch. I really, really like going into this. I knew okay, at least Christopher Lee is good in this movie. But I just <laughs> kept longing for scenes like this. And like I said, you know, I like we don't need we don't need twenty minutes of Bond going to kung fu school. We could use more Lee. Yeah, yeah. There should have been more of these conversations. There should have been. There should have been a pursuing of this central idea. This is the central idea of the film. But like you say, instead we get kung fu school and solar power. Yeah, yeah. And even even like as you mentioned, like Christopher Lee's living this comfy life on the island. He doesn't even know how the science behind the solar the Solex agitator works. He says island science was never my strong suit. I'm afraid, and, but he just happily operates it and he also he also fires a laser at uh bond's uh, seaplane <laughs> to strand him on the island yeah yeah there's that's an interesting um because i mean they're 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 depicted very much as kind of equals yeah. you know the the best of breeding etc but yeah scaramonga does uh, plead complete ignorance to scientific matters but james bond he fills him in understands yeah. and it fills him in so i guess there's still this this uh inkling of just that that bond is still the 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 grander, more more rounded, educated gentleman. He is a truly a bastion of civilization, where Scaramanga is, is capable of capable of exercising his will through violence, but lacks refinement. Yeah. Um. I don't. I don't know if there's any discussion at any point of. Uh, oh, there is. Um. There, there's a scene over dinner where James Bond recommends who tries the wine and says that it's like another kind of wine, and Scaramanga takes notes. So there, there's this, and and this is really this is the good stuff in the film because it, it yeah. again points this portrait that Scaramanga is a wannabe. And he buys into this class structure that James Bond is part of, and this this idea of, an, of a well-bred elite gentleman. And so Scaramanga says, I'll take note of that. And he takes note of the wine to, that he'll stock it, because he has the money. Um, so, I mean, there's there's this idea almost of, like, the new money gentleman, you know, which is something that I guess cropped up a lot in, like, classic Hollywood. There was, the, you know, the idea that always said he had the, the British uh, gentleman um, and, and kind of social, you know, kind of... Uh, 
aristocracy and then Americans were often depicted took often to comic effect as like new money is kind of boorish they yeah. had all of the they had all the purchasing power because they had all this money but they, they didn't have the refinement um, and sure, that was a, pepper exactly, exactly <laughs> yeah so I mean and I think this is an interesting thing that Scaramanga is clearly buys into this and he can't but he can't buy into it he doesn't have the the something is missing the education the 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 training the 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 finishing that James Bond has but we only get these snippets of it in this one conversation they they really they don't have this discussion and it's it's worth mentioning throughout this entire sequence that um Brit Eklund sits there basically in a bikini looking just blank faced like she has nothing to do uh, other than being a bikini, yeah. at that point, that is her sole job it's, function. It's worth noting that also in uh, in Scaramanga's science lab, he has one henchman slash scientist who ops or operates it. It's a guy named Craw, K R A, and the guy looks less like a scientist and more like a bouncer at a nightclub. Yeah, you know, if he's a scientist, he definitely he lifts. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and when like, he operates this entire thing, one person operates the whole island. Well, two because Nick Knack does everything else. Nick so Knack, yeah, the, the he's the man servant, and this guy's the the, the heavy machinery. Staff. Yeah. So I guess the idea being that this solar power is so refined and perfect that it just requires one guy to operate it, and he is again. Uh, he's actually crossed one of the very few people in this film who dies. This is a, a strangely tame film, and very almost no one dies in it. But Craw does. He actually gets honestly probably the worst, one of the worst deaths in the whole film. I think. Yeah, uh, well, probably the worst because everyone else just kind of gets shot. Yeah, just just shots and falls over, and he's killed by uh, Good Night. She the soul. God, imagine being killed by her. <laughs> I mean, that what guy's already moment. embarrassing, but yeah, to go out like it's that true. is, is he doesn't have much to do. And she hits him over the head with what looks to be honestly like a comedy oversized wrench, <laughs> and hits him, and he falls into a vat of a frozen helium, which is open somehow I don't know how that works but this offsets the whole solar thing and everything yeah. blows up but that's getting slightly ahead of ourselves uh, first there's Scaramanga, a duel we gotta go through yeah there, there is so Scaramanga gives Bond a tour of the whole thing and at this point we get more of the, the elements where Bond is able to you know pull ahead in the smart R stakes by knowing about solar energy etc um, and he shows him the inner workings and then explains his plan about how this actually has kind of a black hat kind of element to it in that he's going to basically uh, sell off the entire, you know, renewable energy to whoever. And it's, and, and they even mention, you know, that the the oil shakes of, of the, you know, the uh, OPEC countries would pay mm-hmm. truly handsomely, maybe more handsomely than anyone else just to buy this power just so they can suppress it. And yeah. keep oil prices high. So there's like these little touches of what could have been interesting if they were going to follow up on it. Um, but basically, he's just going to sell it to the highest bidder. Um, and that's that. They kind of had that discussion. And then I don't even remember where they break off from here, but they off. Oh, the, the duo. The duo. He challenges. Yeah. He, so, so, and it comes out the, the elite gentleman. What is the most absolutely polite way to shoot someone? <laughs> which of course English came up with that yes yeah. <laughs> yeah what's the most polite way to formally execute someone yeah and they, I mean, so they, they, they were still like even in the revolutionary war they were still just marching in rows towards <laughs> soldiers who were at, using guerrilla warfare tactics to smartly kill them like oh, there's, no, there's no honor in 
war. It's true. It was like the Boer War in South Africa where they uh, took massive losses because they wore bright red jackets. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, ooh, there's, comes, there's a time and a place to do this. But anyhow, um, so yeah, they, they have a duel and Nick Knack is the referee mm-hmm. um, and basically they are going to step whatever 20 paces apart and turn and shoot. Um, and again, this is weird to me because then Scaramanga disappears when Bond turns around. But isn't this the fairest, most gentlemanly way to do it? Does it, you know? So why doesn't Scaramanga just do it with a duel? He's in superb shot. Surely he's got every bit as much of a chance. But instead, he retreats to the funhouse. So is he a coward? Well, yeah. Do you remember the? Do you remember the funhouse from the first scene? We got to bring that back somehow. Got to, got to bring that back. And again, and so it compromises his character. And so we have this whole film that doesn't doesn't make enough of the the competition and the the mirroring of bond and scaramanga and then starts to to my mind to, to strip away scaramanga as a character and it compromises him yeah you know with this with this goofy funhouse thing so bond gets lured into the funhouse which has lots of effects now knickknack leads him in there and knickknack explains while leading him in there that if bond can manage to successfully kill him well then, Nicknack gets everything. That's right. So, what does Nicknack help Bond? Is he on his side? Is he actually an ally? No, he's not. So I don't know why they even have this plot thread. Um, so yeah, it's it's I don't know. It's it's just a weird thing. And the the, the funhouse itself sequence apparently was supposed to be much longer, I believe, which seems to be a running theme because uh, this kind of reminds me as an element of like say um, Orson Welles' Lady from Shanghai, which mm-hmm. also ends in like a funhouse. Um, and Mad Detective, the Johnny Toe film does as well. And oh, I, yeah. I'm not sure about the Johnny Toe film, but I think the lady from Shanghai was also, they had a much longer funhouse scene planned. Seems like all directors come into this with like, yeah, it's going to be amazing. And then the producers come in, they're like, yeah, cut this short. This is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's, it's, we, and it's like it's not even like very exciting. It's just very no. it's very sluggishly. Even that with with if it's seemingly cut down, it still feels very sluggish. And it, it, there's it's not a very fun climax. No, and, there, and the, yeah, there's there's nothing happening to. I mean, it's like it's like a really bad. Like it looks like a really bad high school haunted house. That's yeah. You know, it's like like a, a like a skeleton just pops out very slowly and makes a noise. And it's like we're talking about dudes who were just about to have a duel you know with like ultimate reflexes and aim and yeah. there's just these incredibly slow moving mannequins and a cowboy that comes out with this really awkward animatronic like fanning his the, the hammer of the gun shooting um like yeah it's, it's just really static and slow and boring the camera effects or the the set design effects i think are just really not that they're not inspiring they don't they you know there's nothing like i can barely remember what's in there i know there's one point where we have like a, a doorway that lights up a kind of a twisting doorways you know kind of light up in a series behind it yeah and um, there's another which, another shot that like lights up down there's a there's a mirror at one point that acts as like a two-way mirror that bond bumps into and then there's also like a, a hallway down at the very end where it's just a, a static image of Skyrimanga's face with like a like a purple hypnosis background. It looks like it looks like an outtake from uh, Hitchcock's Vertigo from the Nightmare sequence. Man, that'd be great if Jimmy Stewart dreamed of Christopher Lee. Oh man, that would change that would change up that film extensively. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's like all of these things feel very familiar. Like the House of Mirrors, the the askew doorways, um, the the dummies. I mean, are like kind of a staple of horror movies. 
but this is an action sequence. It's supposed to, and it's supposed to be like an intrigue sequence. But there's nothing that really, like, there's no sense where we feel like they're, you know, like the James Bond is truly being tricked or being led genuinely astray. There's, you know, there's no point where he makes any kind of a brilliant deduction to circumvent the the circumstances. It's just like well, he's he standing does, in a room. He does take a mannequin's jacket so he can pose as yeah. <laughs> the mannequin and ultimately defeat Scaramanga. That's true, which is a really weak kind of a yeah, kind is. of a setup. But he, like it's pretty much James Bond stands in a room, some stuff happens around him pretty slowly. He takes a jacket and then he just shoots Scaramanga and it's like the mo- for his ultimate nemesis, it's just such an anticlimactic sequel like I, I like i thought something else was gonna happen something else would have to happen because it's just bang he's dead cool mm, yeah and no and that's it he actually is dead it's just absolutely nothing else happens there's nothing else up his sleeve yeah and uh so bond then there's a an excruciatingly long sequence where bond has to get the solix agitator out of the device that fires the laser this does lead to um, probably, honestly, the other highlight of the film for me, which is that Britt Eklund's butt nearly kills James Bond, <laughs> yeah. which is at least something of a gag. She just, like, being stupid, she, like, sits back on the control panel and accidentally reactivates the solar system, so this massive laser beam shoots down nearly on James Bond. Um, that's about as good as it gets, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, so he... he he liberates the Solex agitator thing, whatever, which doesn't matter. Like it's um, let's say it's a MacGuffin. It's a complete, just made up kind of a, an element to yeah to further like, a plot line that doesn't even need to be in the film. Yeah, like the Lecter. But uh, yeah, but they really keep coming back to this thing, anyways. <laughs> Bond sabotages the device. The henchman falling into the the liquid helium causes the temperature rise, which uh, leads basically to the whole island exploding. But uh, luckily, they get out on a. Uh, Which, is it like a junk ship? They do on a yeah. junk. Yeah, yeah. this is something else to, that I thought was kind of funny. It's like earlier on, they talk about the energy crisis and they talk about how there's oil shortages and uranium is too dangerous. Uh, like nuclear power is too dangerous. But now they've substituted in for a format where they have open pools of helium and if anything falls in them that changes the temperature, entire islands explode. <laughs> So um, I'm not. I feel like maybe maybe stick with nuclear. I don't know. But anyhow, not like they thought about this. So why should I think about it? Doesn't really matter. Uh, everything explodes. They escape on Scaramanga's personal junk ship, um, and of course, Knickknack then reemerges. Yeah. So and then and this fight is weird because I like that Knickknack. Knickknack first tries to jump on them. They're in the bed. Knickknack tries to jump on them from above with a knife. Uh, they immediately they dodge him and uh, Nicknack. I like that he climbs under a couch that's embedded against the wall, which has like a little secret Nicknack passageway for him to come running into the room from another door. And then, but then he starts picking up all these wine bottles from the wine rack and he starts throwing them at Bond. And Bond is like smashing them with a baseball bat. And first of all, Bond and Mary Goodnight are only wearing bathrobes and they're barefoot and there's broken glass getting everywhere. And secondly, none of the wine bottles appear to have any liquid in them. It's all yeah. just glass. It's like, is there decorative wine bottles? I don't know. Maybe yeah. that's why Scaramanga jotted down the name of the wine earlier. It's like, yeah, I should get a couple of bottles with actual wine in them. Because, yeah. yeah, there's it's this lazy 
set up. Yeah, there's no wine in them. There's They could have put that in as a detail. They're running around. There's no consequence of the place being covered in glass. And and it, it's a ridiculous fight. Because for one thing, Knickknack climbs in to assassinate them with a knife. And he is an overhead thing. It's like, bring a gun. You're yeah. four foot tall. <laughs> <laughs> like, just bring a gun. And if he had brought a gun and just hung out the top and shot them both, they'd be dead. Yeah. It would have been for easy. But instead, he has to jump down on them with a knife. Mm-hmm. And um, then, which... And, and if, yeah, well, if, if you think Scaramanga's comeuppance was uh, embarrassing, <laughs> just wait to get a little <laughs> what happens to Knickknack. Because Bond locks that motherfucker up in a briefcase. Oh, uh, it's a bit demeaning. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah, why not? I suppose he doesn't kill him though. He just hangs him out. I mean, maybe he dies of exposure, but he just hangs him out in like an old school like crow's nest, ca- yeah. like cage, yeah, up in the crow's nest. It's like, do junk ships have those? I don't. Apparently, they do now. So, and they ride off into the sunset with Mary Goodnight and James Bond finally, finally getting to do James Bond's activity, which is copulating on aquatic machinery that's right um, that's another so, one of those so, I don't know what the count is but uh, I mean I'd say at least half a dozen by now yeah I should I should have done a count specifically of that scenario um, yeah. but yeah and so and our end credits roll promising us that James Bond will indeed return and I believe the spy who loves me is correct. the next one yep so so that that's the rundown of the film everyone uh, as you can probably tell we're not a uh, we're not really recommending this one. No, yeah. Completists only. This is, yeah, this is a very, very odd misfire. Um, there's elements I like in it, but it just just does not work with me. And I'd say, I, 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 and I love all watching all these movies, but I would say this is one of three uh, Bond films that I genuinely do not like. And, and we will get to the other two. Sure, but, uh, yeah. But yeah, and this I would one agree with it. you. I would agree. I mean, Casino Royale, the David Niven, Peter Sellers well, that, one, which that isn't really count, part of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not counting that either. That's also an absolute disaster. Um, but yeah, this is the first of the, the main line of James Bond movies that has honestly been a chore to sit through. That, you know, that's like Thunderball's a little bit slow, but it's got plenty going on to recommend it. Uh, I wasn't, as we discussed, I wasn't as enamored in uh, with Diamonds Are Forever, but still, I mean, it... it well, it wasn't that like one I was I unabashedly like, love. I know, I, I know. That's, that's fair. I, I know I would, we did have some disagreement on that one, but yeah, this but one. But I was uh, still like, yeah. I, I mean, I wasn't like checking my watch. I wasn't like zoning fair. out and then having to rewind slightly because I was like, why did this happen? Because like, did <laughs> yeah. I miss something? And like, the worst part was every time I zoned out and I wasn't sure where something happened. The answer was that uh, it just happened because it just happened. It, it just was like happened. there was no good reason. It wasn't like I missed something and made. You know, it would be okay if I went back and I was like, oh, I actually did miss something. Nope, never. No, they're just in Kung Fu school. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Let's run some numbers. All right, let's do it. I got a, I got some budget stuff. Um, so this film cost $7 million to make, which uh, is now equivalent to $35 million. Um, this was one of the low, not and not just that our reaction is negative, but this is actually one of the lowest grossing Bond films ever. Uh, it only made twenty one million in the U.S., uh, which, if you adjust for inflation, is only is equivalent to one hundred and seven million. But I feel like if a film makes one hundred and seven million dollars today, it's an unequivocal disaster. Oh which God, is, Solo, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Solo made like eighty million dollars, if it's a failure, um, and then it made ninety seven million worldwide, which is still uh, four hundred ninety eight million when adjusted for inflation. 
But still, this um, this really threw a kink in the uh, the franchise because they've been steadily releasing these films like every one or two years. But uh, it would be the longest gap we face until The Spy Who Loved Me for a total of three years because of uh, the failure of this film. So, uh, yeah, those are my numbers. And uh, it also was not nominated for any Oscars. So, well, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't give it any. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, would, uh, speaking of low numbers, didn't do well in the box office. This also is a weirdly not like a weirdly non-violent Bond film in yeah. one sense. We don't we we have a body count of one that I'm counting honestly, um, which is just Scaramanga, who's, yeah. who's just unceremoniously shot. Uh, there's a couple of couple of beat ups throughout the film, but I mean, really, they are just they're just you know regular brawls yeah so i don't think anything else happens with him so um yeah this is nowhere near our record holder thunderball or sean connery off 21 people <laughs> this is this is the, this is the lowest body count yet i believe uh the only one close to this was i think honor majesty's secret service was maybe three or dr no i think both those were like three to four yeah so this is this is handful, um, yeah but yeah, this this is the least is lethal, the least lethal James Bond yet. Which is so, weird because of how cold and dark Moore is through much of it. Like he has no problem yeah. like slapping and beating women here, but uh, killing people he doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't want to treat his villains as poorly. I'm afraid. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's true. And I mean, there's body counts otherwise. I mean, Mary Goodnight kills Kra, and Scaramanga kills several people, including uh, yeah, he's, the, the he's other the, real. the other Bond girl, yeah. um, Andre Anders. He and murders her. Murders her. Um, kills Hyphat and kills the gangster in the beginning, and then Gibbon uh, or Gibson, the Solix agitator Solix expert. Guy. So yeah, I mean, there's there's. There's other things happening around. Like, James Bond almost feels like he's a passenger in his own film, honestly, at this point. Um, but, yeah, so there you go. If you're looking for if you're looking for high violence and mayhem, probably don't start with the James Bond movies generally, but uh, not this one specifically. Um, just doesn't pan out. So, yeah. James, James Bond will kill again, don't worry, but not so good here. Yeah. Um, Honestly, which, I'd say, I'd say, yeah, at the end of the day, if you're looking to watch a good chunk of these, you can easily skip this one. I mean, if you, oh, if you, if you're listening this far and you haven't watched it, I mean, we basically spoiled the whole thing, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, this is a, this gets a, this is a pass. This is a pass. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's talk, uh, age differences. We're keeping sure. track. Roger, the Rush Moore era. Uh, we're going to get some good numbers here. So um, he only sleeps with two women in this film, Andre Anders and Britt Eklund. So it's uh, about average, a little lower than the average. I think it's only two to three. I don't know. It's terrible that I have even an average calculated for this at this point. But anyhow, um, so age differences between the actresses. Roger Moore is approximately 47 years uh, old in this. Britt Eklund was 32. Andre Anders was 29. So it gives age differences of 15 years and 18 years. Which is not great, but honestly, does not even begin to touch Live and Let Die, which is our current record holder with 23 years between Roger Moore and Jane Seymour as actors. Uh, plus the fact that in that movie, Roger Moore basically, uh, or James Bond, destroyed, uh, uh, what's her name, Domino, uh, mm. destroys her destroys her psychic abilities by lying to her and then has sex with her. Yeah. Um, which is an extra an extra mark against it, but we discussed that in Live and Let Die. Uh, so anyway, that's those those were our numbers. Uh, Roger Moore being nearly fifty in these films, and this is like his second movie, and he's already nearly fifty. 
He will be 50 in the next movie, in fact. He will oh only get older looking. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh... Man, uh, I didn't just check how old Christopher Lee was, but, I mean, he's honestly looking... He's probably even older, actually, but honestly almost has more of a physical presence to him. Let me see if I can do some quick math. Van, quick van math. for a minute. All right, I'll, I'll fill in the space by talking about uh, other stuff. Um, he man, was 52 was, when this movie was released. 50, 52. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, Christopher Lee was 90-something when he died. He's just a trooper. Yeah, um, and he only but, just died three years ago. Yeah, and he still had that last heavy metal album in him. <laughs> we, will, we will never live anything close to the life of Christopher Lee. Almost no one will ever, will ever touch that man. But anyhow... So I, I suppose uh, th- those were our numbers. Didn't do well in the box office. Not a lot of killing. Didn't do well Creepies, with us. Creeper, creepy gender dynamics throughout. So yeah, if that sounds like your kind of thing, then check out uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah. Well, uh, Jack, where can the good people find you on social media? Okay, I can be found on Twitter at uh, RealJackEason.com. Uh, so give me give me a shout if you got any uh, questions, comments, abuse. I'm just on there far too often, so I'll probably respond. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I'm at Jake Tropila, T R O P I L A. Give us a you know, give us a shout out. Say hey, I like the series. Uh, if you like, if you like, uh, if you like the man with the golden gun, let us know. Tell us why. Tell us what you. No, I'm genuinely it. curious to yeah. hear the the counterpoint. Yeah, and uh, yeah, feel free to subscribe if you haven't already to the Opvac Cast, uh, which is the network we are part of. We have a lot of great podcasts coming out, including uh, I'll I'll, uh, I'll promote a few. We got a caustic content where two of our cohorts, Steve and Adam, are uh, torturing themselves to find the absolute worst garbage for free on streaming services and challenging each other to find the bottom of the barrel every day. Um, and then we also have our regular Opvac Cast where we. Uh, Probably uh, talk about how great Bloomhouse's Truth or Dare is the cinematic savior of 2018. Uh, so be sure to check all that. You can also send us an email at optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Or you can even follow our regular Twitter at optimismvaccine. Uh, well, Jack, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Uh, I feel we can only go up from here. That's true. And I, I, will, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, I think uh, with Roger Moore, good times are ahead. For For Your Ears Only, we'll return with the spy who loved me. Take care, y'all.